Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode of Shut Up, Evan is sponsored by Boxed Water. Summer is just about here, which means Barbie is soon in theaters, Che Diaz is terrorizing Los Angeles, and rising temperatures mean that you are likely dehydrated. Fear not. Boxed Water is here to provide you with the necessary hydration without the guilt of single-use bottles and cans. Reusable bottles are clearly the best option for our planet, but there are situations where their use is not possible or practical. Boxed Water offers the perfect solution in the form of a 92% plant-based package. Stay hydrated all summer long and beyond, and don't forget to check out their delicious flavors, including their limited-time watermelon flavor. Head to BoxedWaterIsBetter.com to find a location near you or to purchase online. That's BoxedWaterIsBetter.com. Why? Because it's better. Boxed Water. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. And just like that, we are back with an all-new episode of Shut Up, Evan. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I'm joined once again by my friend and co-host, Sean Ross. Sean, how are you? I am great. Feeling gorgeous? Yeah, I am. I have to say, we're here today to talk about No Hard Feelings, uh, Mm -hmm. the new Jennifer Lawrence vehicle, but I have to start off with some headlines because do you feel like this past week was especially headlining? In what sense? I just feel like the pop culture news cycle was like off its fucking axis. Oh, Madonna. Well, that, yes. So we have... Madonna, who, as of this recording, has been discharged from the hospital after being found unresponsive at her home. We have the other two, the beloved Mm. Max series, which announced its abrupt cancellation amid HR complaints. In fact, the series finale is up and available. And I think the series finale was released and then it was just sort of like, okay, this is the end. There is no more. Which is really sad because I think it's one of the most authentic representations of the queer experience for a certain subset of queer people. HR complaints? It's dark, Sean. Oof. What's going on with sets? Okay, not to like deviate too far, but like, 
I think about the Buffy book that I wrote uh-huh. in which everyone involved with the show was that like... That was 25 years ago. Right. And they were like, we hated making it. Then there was that big lost expose uh-huh. that came out recently where it was like, this set is terrible. And now we have this one. And obviously there's been many other instances through the years. I mean, think about Kim Cattrall's experience on Sex and the City, according to her. All this to say that like, I don't know what to make of this in that I think this is incredibly common but i don't think something being common like i don't think that should be normalized i'm not sure what the root of the problem is here because i think part of the hollywood industrial complex is that the people at the top hold a lot of power and people with power often abuse power it's just it's upsetting because i think this overshadows the fantastic work uh, of the writers and the actors on the show. Um, but hopefully, you know, people will retroactively take a look at it. And I hope this leads to more opportunities for the cast members. Okay, beyond the other two, we have the Tiffany store in New York City, which caught on fire. Did you know that? It's because they're cooking breakfast in there. <laughs> you can't mix breakfast and jewelry. Mm. So then we have Kim Cattrall, who broke her silence about her return to the Sex and the City universe for the first time. We have Miranda Sings, also breaking her silence about grooming allegations. Oh, that song. Oh, all aboard the toxic gossip train. Yes, by posting a 10-minute video playing the ukulele. (laughs) Put it on Spotify. I woke up with it in my head. Mm -hmm. We have Pink, uh, the singer who was handed the ashes of someone's mother as well as a wheel of brie cheese during her recent concert yeah we have the weekend being inducted as a member of the academy of motion pictures arts and sciences pardon me <laughs> we have real housewives of orange county star taylor armstrong coming out as bisexual we have trans influencer dylan mulvaney breaking this is a big week for silence breakers yeah. dylan mulvaney broke her silence about the bud light controversy stating that the company did not reach out to her after she faced relentless targeted harassment from the right-wing media up to and including ted cruz that was a good one things are off their fucking axis but i think the root of it is really people breaking their silence and yeah. the wheel of brie cheese and the dead woman's ashes that pink got on stage big week Big, big week. Among those headlines, which for you is the one that you have the most thoughts on? Madonna. That really shook me to my core. I've got tickets. I've got tickets to two nights of the celebration tour, believe it Mm -hmm. or not. Uh, Yeah, I know. And I, uh, look, I have a lot of respect for Madonna. I always will. I know that, you know, the last few years have been weird uh, for Madonna. Uh, You could argue the last 10 or so. But, you know, it's... She's an icon. She's one of our last living icons, I think. And this is very upsetting news. Like, I I don't know what's going on with her. Um, We're being told it's a bacterial infection. I don't really know what that means. That she goes to the ICU seems really intense. Yeah. Uh, There's just like a sort of silence. I saw that Rosie O'Donnell posted something yesterday saying that she's feeling good. So that's promising because I always trust Rosie O'Donnell. But uh, it's upsetting to me. It's very upsetting. Absolutely. And you know, I'm seeing like what I'm seeing a lot of online is people sort of like doing posts, kind of like almost getting ahead of if Madonna had died. They're doing almost tribute-esque posts of 
this is her impact, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, wait, now we ne- now we need to respect Madonna, where like two months ago people were making fun of Madonna. And it's this really strange thing where it's like people almost it's like it's like that classic Lady Gaga paparazzi performance at the VMAs where it's like mm-hmm. people want to see celebrities like fall, right? And and it it's dark. I think it's really, really dark what happens and watching people's reaction to that. I mean, isn't this sort of the epicenter of the idol? Like, that's sort of what the show was intending to capture. But yeah, Yeah. that's absolutely true since the dawn of the celebrity. Yeah, it's much more enticing for the public to chew up someone and spit them out um, as opposed to, I was going to say digest them, but like, that's also like not the ideal scenario for the celebrity. (laughs) But yeah, I think that in general people, I mean, I think the propagation of bad faith arguments is all, it's all sort of tied together. This idea that people do not want to see people succeed. People want to see people fail. And I think that says a lot about, ourselves and our culture and I'm not I'm not exonerating myself from this and saying I'm above it but yeah there is this I don't want to call it a trend but I definitely think it's a societal shift because you can now watch collectively some I mean I think about that video do you remember Scarlet takes a tumble no it's one of the earliest YouTube videos and it's this woman and she's on top of a table singing oh, yes. very earnestly yeah yes. and then yes. she falls over and it's like And it was, I think, one of the earliest viral videos, and we were all collectively laughing at this woman's pain. There's a fucked up nature when you look back and think about that. At the same time, I can watch that video, and I do find it funny. Uh Uh-huh. So there's that complexity. Well, comedy is universal, baby. indeed. Now, (laughs) from the comedy stylings of Scarlet Takes a Tumble to No Hard Feelings, we're here today to discuss this film, which brought us, you and I both, back to the Megaplex. Are you someone that frequents the movies in a post-COVID world? No, actually. And I really was a a very big film goer uh, pre-COVID. But I don't know. A lot of things changed for me, and it has nothing to do with being in a theater post-COVID. Like, that's not my concern. I just sort of, like, lost interest. And I think that I saw a handful of movies that I was just like, eh, like, this isn't worth the trip out of my house. Like... I was, I've just become a little bit of a Grinch. And so, I look, I was very excited walking into the movie theater yesterday to see this movie. Not a movie I would see. Like, I was a film goer, but I was never like a, there's a new comedy, I'm going to go see mm-hmm. it, because I famously hate to laugh. Mm. Yeah, I <laughs> went to one of those, like, fancy theaters where you have, like, a server, oh. and they, like, bring the food and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, like, (laughs) I am not a big fan of, like, the luxury movie-going experience. I think it is very tedious. I do not like how often, like, the Challengers trailer, for instance, came on during the film. Mm -hmm. And I went to the movie with Billy, and he hadn't seen the Challengers trailer yet. And, like, for those that don't know, it's Luca Guadagnino's new film starring Zendaya, Mike Feist, and Josh O'Connor. Jonathan Anderson of Loewe and J.W. Anderson did the costumes. I'm like extremely hype about it. And then as I'm like, oh my God, Billy, like here it is, here it is. The waiter from the cubicle, whatever you want to call it, in front of us, walks forward and starts taking the order for the people in front of us and like directly blocking our view of the trailer. And I just was like, 
couldn't this have been a text message? Can't you text the waiter and be like, here's my order? Oh my God. Yeah, there should be little iPads. I get it. They're just doing their job. I'm not I'm not shitting on them. But just the system to me is quite unrefined. And then there's like a button that you push when you want service. But it's like, what if I just texted and, and, and told you the service that I'm asking to save you the trip over to me to be like, what do you need? Because I just need a refill. Yeah. What's more obnoxious, pulling out your phone during a movie or having a waiter come up during the movie? Exactly. And they just can put a little thing up saying, hey, everyone, brightness low, because in the event that you need yeah. to be texting. Also, I felt the side, because again, we're in like this like cubicle contraption thing. I felt like the paneling along the side, I swear to you, it was like styrofoam. And I just was like, this is not up to snuff, especially I think it was like $26 or something that we paid. And that's not including the price of the food that we ordered. Yeah. I was just unimpressed. For those wondering, I did not go to Alamo Draft House and I did not go to Nighthawk. I love both of those places. But I do just got to say, like, for me, movies, I just, I, I'm not looking for anything fancy. I'm looking for a bowl of popcorn and a big Diet Coke. So what did you eat at the movie? <laughs> I had Brussels sprouts. <laughs> oh, uh, I know, but they, wait, they were actually good. Get a grip. <laughs> we had Brussels sprouts and then chicken Caesar wraps. Okay. The wraps were a chop. I got to say the Brussels sprouts were decent, but like we're in a dark theater and That's it just was not a thing. practical. I know. Like, it's like you can have the most VIP experience in the world, but at the end of the day, you're in a dark movie theater and there's like truly nothing luxurious about eating in the dark. Absolutely not. And the irony here too, being that you're reclined, right? Because that's the whole like buy-in. <laughs> yeah. So you're like in a leather chair, kind of like you feel like you're at the dentist's office, but then all of a sudden this food comes around and to top it all off, this theater, which by the way, they sent an email being like, how was your experience? And I was like, well, because you asked. This theater, the leather chair, when you went and pressed the button to move it forward and back, it made the loudest sound Ugh. that leather can make to the point where whenever someone would come into the theater and like move the chair up and down, we collectively as a theater would laugh because it's like, oh, they now know, they're now keen to this thing that we all know. Mm. And it just kept happening over and over again. Anyway, so movie going experience, I I'm going to stick to just like simple multiplexes. I, I unfortunately... I went against my girl, Nicole Kidman, and her affiliation with AMC and tried for a more luxury experience, and it was a thumbs down. Well, karma got its kiss for you. <laughs> it sure did. So this film, No Hard Feelings. Evan, Evan, maybe start that over, but like, watch, you're, you're really peaking. Oh, sorry. And also, Billy, could you maybe not open the... Go out. <laughs> you're shouting through the whole house. Okay, Billy. <laughs> what if we broke up, like, in this moment? <laughs> Wait, now you're in the refrigerator? Billy... Okay. And I'm single. <laughs> so No Hard Feelings is billed as a sex comedy starring Jennifer Lawrence as 32-year-old Maddie Barker, a down-on-her-luck Uber driver slash bartender in Montauk, New York, who is facing bankruptcy after her car is repossessed as she owes property taxes on a home she inherited from her mother. If you think that's convoluted, I'm only a little less than halfway through. <laughs> Desperate to avoid losing the home, she accepts an unusual Craigslist posting. Her new employers, a pair of helicopter parents, played by Matthew Broderick and Laura Benanti, ask her to, quote, date their 19-year-old son, Percy, played by Andrew Barth Feldman, in exchange for a Buick Regal. Percy has no experience with girls, drinking, parties, or sex, and his parents hope to boost his confidence before he attends Princeton University in the fall. Hijinks ensue. 
The film is written and directed by Gene Stupinski, who executive produced both The Office and our beloved Jury Duty, and not coincidentally wrote the screenplay for Bad Teacher, a film with a very similar premise about a titular bad teacher, played by Cameron Diaz, trying to raise money for breast enhancement surgery. The consensus on the film amongst audiences and critics is quite mixed. It currently holds a 68% fresh from critics and 88% fresh from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. In their review, Variety stated, quote, as an actor, Jennifer Lawrence radiates pride, question mark, sensuality and a glowing belief in herself. And I didn't buy for a moment that her Maddie would sign on to sleeping with some kid to all gain access to a car so that she could rejoin the gig economy because otherwise her beloved house will go poof. But watching No Hard Feelings, you sort of roll with it because the director and co-writer works with a confectionery skill that tugs you along. Because in spirit, it's just a rom-com, a form not meant to pass the plausibility test. And because Lawrence, acting with a brazen theatrical sexiness that allows her to wink at the audience at how adeptly she can turn it off and on, and big screen newcomer Andrew Barth Feldman, who's like Mike White crossed with the pale son of Seth Meyers crossed with an amoeba, <laughs> turns out to be a winning actor. So that is our table setting. Sean, mm -hmm. start off by telling me what was your favorite part of this film? Okay, I think that my favorite part was when she met the nanny, mm -hmm. right? So, oh, and everybody should know we're, we're spoiling this, right? Yeah. As we tend to do. Wait, sorry, can I pause you real quick just to yeah. say something about this? Because spoilers have come up on this and our other podcast in general. I think the rule about this stuff moving forward is... If it's reality competition, if there is a thing with which that can be spoiled, then I, I recognize a sensitivity. When it comes to a movie like this or And Just Like That, um, unless it's like Big's death or something major, if it's just us talking about the plot points of the film. Big dies? Oh, God. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> But that, like, wouldn't be shocking if that, this was the moment you found out. Anyway, all this to say that, like, yes, we are, like, spoiling, but I do feel like there needs to be new nomenclature around, like, there are degree, there are different kinds of spoiling. I think this is lowbrow spoiling. Well, yeah. I mean, look, this is a rom-com. We know how it ends. Yeah. You know how it ends going into the film, right? There are no surprises here. No. Well... There's one that's seen on the beach, but we'll get to that. Anyway, well, so your yeah. favorite thing about the film. Surprising, but it's not a surprise. <laughs> True. So uh, favorite favorite part of the movie. That's something I haven't been asked in a long time. What was the favorite? What was your favorite part? Uh, my favorite my favorite part. Like, okay, this is the thing. I, I tend not to like find rom-coms that funny. Like sometimes I find the humor a little predictable, okay? Mm -hmm. And so what I enjoy about a movie like this is is really Jennifer Lawrence's performance. It's the physical comedy of it. It's like what the actor brings to the character and the way that they move and the way that they sort of like interact with the world. And so I felt like the the funniest moments for me were when, you know, we're hearing about how uh, the 19-year-old, look, look, I don't even know his name. In the film? Yeah. His name <laughs> is Percy. When we hear that Percy has a relationship with his nanny, his, his old nanny, Jody, and that Jody is a really important person in his life. And so he's going to introduce Jennifer Lawrence's character to Jody. And we find out that Jody is a man, okay? And then uh, 
Jody is confronting Jennifer Lawrence about what the hell she's wants with this kid, right? This 19-year-old who's who's being referred to as a child basically through the whole movie. Yeah. Where Jennifer Lawrence was ready to be caught up, she actually held her ground. She was like, "What the what the fuck is is a nanny doing hanging out with their 19-year-old, you know, but whatever you <laughs> You're going to say customer? <laughs> child that's a child that's a child uh so i, I felt like that's where i got uh, the, the biggest laughs and, and there, i think there was there was something she said around there that she was like get a life and honestly get a life is one of my favorite phrases i think it works totally agree. totally timeless you can use it in so many different circumstances and you can yeah. always land the degree of... it's such a burn it's yeah. such a burn there's yes. no coming back from get a life because it's literally like oh well you're right i don't have a life it's funny because there's like this famous moment in the early seasons of Real Housewives of New York where Bethany tells Jill to get a hobby, which I feel like is a, yeah. a version of get a life. And that's always stayed burned in my brain because when someone tells you to get a hobby, it's like, what do you retort back with? I mean, they've, yeah, it's a KO. Yeah. Get a life or grow up. Yeah. Grow up. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. You've really been told at that point. Yeah. You bring up Jennifer Lawrence and I think that the reason why this film works the way that it does is because of this performance from Jennifer Lawrence. And I think there's something in the ingredients of Jennifer Lawrence here, right? I think that there's, I think that part of it is her not being on social media. I think that really helps build an intrigue around Jennifer Lawrence because when she does pop up, because she's very much in a press cycle right now because of this film, mm -hmm. she has the persona of like a deeply online person like you and I. And yet, her version of being deeply online is as a voyeur. You know, mm -hmm. on Watch What Happens Live, she talked about the fact that she has a Finsta. She is someone who is very enveloped in the Bravo universe. I think she's also a bachelor person. Like, she's one of us, but we don't touch down with her too often. So that when she comes on our screens in a role like this, you're able to suspend your disbelief far easier than a lot of her contemporaries because I only really know Jennifer Lawrence when she gives us a press cycle and because she is selective in the films that she makes, that's not incredibly often. And she's someone who, for most people, they know her as, uh, what's that, the Catching Fire thing? The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. They know her as the Hunger Games. Katniss Everdeen. Yes. Maybe they know her as X-Men. Maybe they know, yeah. did she get the Academy Award, was it? For the Bradley Cooper one. For Silver Linings Playbook. Silver Linings Playbook. I gotta be honest with you, I am not overly familiar with Jennifer Lawrence's body of work haven't seen silver linings haven't seen it i was scared you were gonna bring it up oh my god no i haven't seen hunger games i haven't seen i've seen the hunger games i've seen x-men um i've seen the x i've seen american hustle weirdly and i believe that she's in that but anyway i think that's part of it and then i just think there's a quality that she has that's not really been seen since like a sandra bullock in terms of just sheer likability. She is both incredibly otherworldly beautiful and yet also has a girl next door quality to her despite being this like once in a generation beauty. 
And I think that that balance... Also, Julia Roberts is another one that I think has that same quality. The only person I could think of watching this film was Drew Barrymore. Drew! Like, watching this film, and it's so not the same as this movie, but I kept thinking about Fifty First Dates, where I thought, uh-huh. this is the kind of movie that Drew Barrymore would have done in the early 2000s, and very similar in terms of, like access right we didn't have the access to stars back then i feel like there's a similar star quality of course this is jennifer lawrence's first like real foray into this genre of like pure comedy where drew was well you know ingrained in that genre at the time but i was just really picking up drew barrymore vibes in the best way i would love a sequel in which Jennifer Lawrence's character meets up with her estranged sister played by Drew Barrymore. Yes, from the father. Yes. On that note, I do feel like one thing that was sort of missing from this film was a better supporting cast because I do think between Jennifer Lawrence and Andrew Barth Feldman, they really were like completely dominating. In terms of Jennifer Lawrence's friends in the film, Mm -hmm. I was craving a group of girlfriends. I was thinking about like the movie Trainwreck as a great example of like a core group of girls or oh, wine country is another great example. But like I wanted her to be able to go back and have this menagerie of girlfriends all with differing opinions on the ethics of what she was doing. For instance, she mentions at one point considering launching an OnlyFans. Uh And then she reasons that it would take too long. And in my mind, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you could literally go home right now, camera up, legs spread. No, no, but it would take too long to make the money. It's like, do you know how many OnlyFans are sitting there with no subscribers? That's a good point. Okay, but I'm saying with the girlfriends, I would want someone... I hear you. I want that conversation that you and I are having right now, where it's like, she says it would take too long. The one friend jumps in, it's like, well, I have an OnlyFans, and I'm making all this money. And then the other... But it's like, but yeah, but that took you a long time. And then, like, you know, you have the one, like, the Charlotte friend who's, like, super conservative, and it's like... Who's like, hey, I'll throw... I'll I'll offer my feet for the OnlyFans. (laughs) Only feet. Well, that's the Samantha, not the Charlotte. And... Yeah, sorry, I wasn't listening. Um... (laughs) The film, though, that it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. I, I no. hear you. Yeah, it does not. But but I do think I really did enjoy Laura Benanti and Matthew Broderick as the parents. I yes. don't think they were, like, quite over the top enough. I think tonally it was, like, it. I almost wanted it to, like, go up, like, one extra level. Yeah, we could have gone, like, meet the Fockers Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I did really enjoy them, and I, I love seeing Matthew Broderick and Laura Benanti on our screen. Laura Benanti, uh, Run Don't Walk to her cast recording of Gypsy. Uh, she played Gypsy Rose Lee, and it is uh, one of my favorite performances I've ever seen live. Everyone was like, Patty Lapone, Patty Lapone, Patty Lapone. And while I understand that, Laura Benanti, Laura Benanti, Laura Benanti. Now, one thing that you mentioned is sort of talking about this as a rom-com. And what's interesting is this is being marketed as a sex comedy. And I do think that that is not for nothing. Um, In fact, in GQ's review, uh, they say, Jennifer Lawrence's No Hard Feelings is bringing raunch back to the movies. Mm -hmm. And we've also been hearing a lot about the return of the hard R comedy. Mm -hmm. Hard R, for those who do not know, is a film intentionally written to be R-rated. I think the best examples would be American Pie or There's Something About Mary. Did you feel like this movie was a hard R? Yes, only because of the nude scene. Uh huh. And outside of that, I wasn't that sort of shocked or taken aback by anything. In fact, I noticed a lack of sex, which is the premise of the film. But 
you know, I didn't think that it was over the top in any way. And Jennifer Lawrence's uh, attempts to try to have sex uh, with her co-star. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to avoid saying this child. Uh <laughs> He is 19. You know, I did think it was funny that they had many, many, many instances where she tells him, you're an adult. Yes. You're an adult. Yes. And that's funny because of the controversy that has come up since about the age gap between them. But, you know, coming back to the sex, I actually didn't find it all that raunchy. And the the only really raunchy thing was the nudity, which actually was distinctly not sexual. Let's talk about that scene, because I have to say, I was screaming, howling at the movie theater (laughs) over this scene, because I think it's hard to shock in 2023. Uh And what's funny is, just to set this up, the two of them are at the beach, and Jennifer Lawrence's character, in an effort to seduce him, is like, let's go skinny dipping. So she strips off all of her clothes, and then before you know it, she's in the water. You don't even get so much as a shot of her backside. So at that point, I'm sort of like, oh, I see what we're doing here. Then he gets in the water too. You don't see anything. They're swimming. And then this trio of kids comes on the beach and is like, we're going to fuck with these two. We're going to take their clothes. At which point, Jennifer Lawrence is in the water and she's shouting like, you know, how dare you, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, they have all the power because they're on the beach with the clothes. And so Jennifer Lawrence uh, decides to get out of the water and go ham on the three of them. At which point you see her entirely naked body. But not only that, you see her literally go WWE on the two men, right? Because she doesn't, I don't think she attacks the woman. Uh, Yeah, she does. Oh, she does. (laughs) I believe it's the woman who karate chops her in the groin. Oh, yeah, you're definitely (laughs) correct. That would play different if it was a man. And it's funny. I read a review because I, I, I love reading reviews. And I read this one review that was like, this was just such a gratuitous nude scene. It was so unnecessary. And it's like, well, yeah. Uh-huh. But also, mind you, Jennifer Lawrence is a producer on this film. And I was watching her Watch What Happens Live appearance, as I mentioned earlier. And she was like totally game for this scene. It was not like something she was like coerced into doing. She clearly understood that like she wanted that hard R comedy. This is how you get that hard R in there. I just thought it was so shocking and crazy. And I I don't know. It was one of those moments where I'm like, thank God I'm seeing this in a movie theater because we collectively were just Mm -hmm. screaming at the fact that this is Jennifer Lawrence, you know, again, Oscar winner Jennifer yeah. Lawrence getting karate chopped in the pussy. And, okay, like, can we back up? Because you asked me what my favorite scene was in the movie. And I'm like, well, when they meet Jody the nanny, were you, yeah. like, looking for this answer? Because <laughs> Not necessarily, but meeting Jody the nanny was an unexpected selection. It was an unexpected turn. The thing for me with these kinds of scenes, so we have kind of two in this film that I would categorize like this. Like, there's this one because of the nudity, and then there's mm-hmm. the party scene where Jennifer Lawrence is punched in the larynx by accident. Yes. Both, like shocking kind of and funny for their own reasons uh i like have 
a little bit of an aversion to when a movie goes out of its way to shock me. And definitely, like, when Jennifer Lawrence was fully nude, I, I did not see that coming. I didn't know this about this movie. Yeah. So I was certainly shocked because it was it did not line up with the Jennifer Lawrence I thought I knew. Uh, that she would, that I always thought like, well, if Jennifer, not that I thought about it, but <laughs> I would have thought had Jennifer Lawrence done a fully nude scene, it would be as part of a very tasteful drama that she would be like Oscar hunting for, right? And here it is in like a early 2000s style raunch comedy. And uh, so that that is shocking. But there's something in me that's like, I'm not going to be, you're trying to shock me? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be shocked. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I know that's annoying of me as, as a moviegoer, but that that's a little bit my reaction. Granted, my job was on the floor. There is something that we as viewers have to do when approaching a rom-com or a sex comedy or whatever, whatever you want to categorize this as, where we have to sort of... And this reminds me of our conversations about And Just Like That, where it's like... If you're going to watch this and wonder how Carrie can afford uh, this lifestyle, it's like, Uh, yes, you're going to find plot holes abound. You sort of have to choose to swerve. Um, But I did find the clunkiness of the premise a little bit hindering my experience of things, Mm -hmm. especially, too, because this idea of gentrification being presented as something new um, was very strange to me um, because places like Montauk have been in being gentrified actively for decades. And so this idea that suddenly she's faced with this problem and ultimately when she owns a house in Montauk that is ostensibly worth multiple million dollars, the fact that she's sort of taking this job to afford, I think it's a, it's a Buick. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of like girly, like rent out your house for the summer and walk away with a fucking Rolls Royce. Well, it's just so wild because, yeah, and I mean, like, they do address that. It's just that it doesn't necessarily make sense. It's just like, well, I don't want those summer people in my house. Well, it's like, well, do you want thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in your wallet? Right. Because that's the trade-off, and we all make trade-offs to make money. And so (laughs) there's that. But also just this premise that she wants this Buick so badly so that she can become an Uber driver again, so that she might be able to make enough money to afford her property taxes. It's just like, and as this goes on and on, because she thinks this is going to be a one and done, I'm going to have sex with this 19-year-old. I'm going to take him out of his shell and I'm going to get the Buick in, in one night only. And as this is going on, she's realizing, well, he doesn't want to do that. And there's this actually this whole other layer where this is like about Gen Z puritanism. Mm-hmm. But that that's another conversation. Um, but that this is going on and on. It's becoming a little bit more involved for her. But the more she invests, the more she feels like she wants the outcome. And so she continues on with it for several, several dates. And it's like, at that point, is there no thought in her mind that goes... Let me go back to these parents and be like, this is a little bit more involved. And so I want to up the ante. Yeah, I do want the Tesla. Or yeah, I want the car and I want $10,000. Oh, absolutely. I had the thought where it's like, what if he finding out about this whole situation of his parents hiring ostensibly a sex worker? What if he teamed up with Jennifer Lawrence and was like, let's fuck with my parents. Let's extort them. Yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) there, there is something to this premise that I think is exciting. I'm just, it's almost like the script needed a punch up in, in some senses, but all of that said, I had a great 
time at this yeah movie. at the same time it did it, it like as much as it it needed a punch up it also didn't need a punch right up. and also like I laughed my ass off and I super appreciated the ending again spoiler alert where I was wondering how they were going to land the plane here because uh-huh. he's in love with her she is not it's a job it's you know it's a gig economy um so I was wondering you know are we and obviously we have to end on a happy note and so we sort of get this great moment where they land on this friendship that they ultimately have discovered because they have this great affection for one another i felt like they really earned that and i think the credit there goes to the performance of Andrew uh, because obviously Jennifer is an Academy Award winner. Like we ultimately knew that she was this girl and capable of being excellent in a comedy like this, but he is like this newcomer. Like his claim to fame before now is that he starred in Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. And I feel like he was such a formidable co-star for her and walk the line so perfectly of being like, as you say, like this sort of like, Gen Zer who like what did you call it earlier? Puritanical. Yes, like there's this puritanical nature of him, and like they present him as someone who like doesn't really have any friends and hasn't left the house. But at the same time, like he had a complexity to him, and again, I think that's in the performance, not the writing. Where by the end of the film, I felt like he had had this coming of age via this. Was it like a week? Like how long? I know. That's the thing. I don't know. I lost the I lost the timeline, but I think a week or two almost. Also, 19 years old going to Princeton, did he like where where did we did we skip a year? Like I feel like that needed to be addressed. And again, I think that was Well, I think he had to be 19 for the for the premise of the film. We not only do we we're not want to toe the line, they were like, we are like backing away from the line. We are like, yeah. he's not 18, he's 19. In fact, it's like, I feel like if they had done another pass, it's like, he's 21. Yeah. I am glad that it landed where it did. I think that they had enormous chemistry. I think it's a super fun film. And if my takeaway from it was anything, it's that like, because we are getting a lot of these headlines being like, this is uh-huh. the return of the sex comedy. And I would like to see more movies like this. And in fact, like I think we can get more outlandish as indicated by what we were saying about the Matthew Broderick, Laura Bonanti, the parents. Um, I like where this film directionally is heading. Yeah. And I had a great time. Do I think it is a perfect film? Certainly not. But I'm really glad I saw it, and I'm, like, super into this Andrew Barth Feldman human being. All of the press that the two of them have done together has been so effing charming. Um, Did you happen to watch, they did, like, a variety uh, sit-down, the two of them, which was basically, like, how well do they know one another? No, I I saw the thumbnail, and I didn't click it. Oh, Sean. I know. Sorry, I watched the I watched the wing. I thought the wings were gonna come up because everybody's talking about Jennifer Lawrence on Hot Hot Ones, yeah, yeah. So I watched that instead. That was kind of boring. I gotta say, like, no, there's nothing to say. The thing with Hot Ones is like the viral clips always hit, but yeah. then sometimes like I'll sit down to like watch it and like and don't get me wrong, he's a great interviewer, but like the show is like much more esoteric than the viral (laughs) clips like have you believe that it is totally and he's like going deep with them which i get that's the point but i just feel like there's a discrepancy between the viral clips and the long form interview to wrap up where do you net out on this film you know what i never would have seen it if it wasn't for you 
and this conversation. So I appreciate that I seen it in the in the same sense that like I appreciate that I watched American Pie when I was in high school only because I was at a sleepover. Like I never would have seen that. And I think it was important that I did see it. And so this like really brought me back to that experience and an experience that I realized I haven't had in a very long time of like seeing a movie I never would have seen. And like kind of having fun with it. Mm. We didn't get any male full frontal, but we did get two butts in the film. We get Andrew's butt as well as Jennifer Lawrence. I was going to say J-Lo. Jennifer (laughs) J-Law has a one night stand with this dude who is hot AF. Hot. Hot, hotty, hot. Hot. And the guy proceeds to stick his dick in, what do you call that thing? It's a Chinese finger trap. Chinese finger trap. Okay, well... (laughs) It's a trap for a reason. So he sticks his dick in it and hijinks ensue. Do we That's see one. his butt? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I was, star- I was like so staring at like the. <laughs> oh, I was like, the this trap. is Corbin Fisher on at the Megaplex. Like it was, yeah. it was good. It was good. Uh, anyway, eager to hear people's thoughts on No Hard Feelings. Like I said, I feel like people are really enjoying it for the most part. If you pick it apart. Yeah. The, if you scratch the itch, you're going to keep scratching. But, yeah. you know, sometimes you just put a Band-Aid on it and say call it a day and now (laughs) from i can't the transitions are so tough you know (laughs) who's your guest our guest today is the fabulous actually i can make a transition here from one great on-screen butt to one of the best on-screen butts of 2022 if not the best the star of the white lotus please welcome our special guest will sharp Oh, wow. Shut up, Devin. So, Will, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I believe that you just got back from Tokyo a few weeks ago. If I recall correctly, because you and I bumped into each other a few weeks ago in London. Oh. We'd just gotten back, and it was your grandmother that was going to be meeting your kids for the first time, right? That's right, yeah. She's 97, and both of our kids were born, I guess, like, in the COVID era, if you like. So, and it was very hard to get back to Japan during that time. So she hadn't met them. And this was the first time she met our three-year-old and our one-year-old. It was really lovely. I can imagine. Did you have a nice trip there overall? Yeah, it's funny because I I lived there till I was eight. So there's like a a layer of nostalgia. It's sort of unlocked when I go back there. Don't you realize it's sort of missing in other parts of of the world? It's weird because if you are mixed race or somebody who grew up in like different parts of the world then there's a part of you that sort of feels a little bit like you're not really sure where your home is or like where you're supposed to settle and that's one way of looking at it but another sort of positive way of thinking about it i suppose is that you can kind of slot in anywhere (laughs) kind of like find a sense of uh, belonging kind of wherever you are and that felt especially true to me uh being in tokyo and yeah it was just like i I really loved like showing my kids um japan and like we went to we went to disneyland uh, which was fun it was still just as we left was when the sort of uh covid restrictions were being eased so while we were at disneyland you sort of queue up to take a photo with mickey mouse and you had to stand like about 10 meters away from him. So he was like, hey guys, I'm going to take a picture, but make sure that you're quite far away. So come over, but stay away. Yeah. It's interesting what you're talking about with that sense of belonging or, or seeking that sense of belonging, because 
that segues very nicely, and I imagine for good reason, uh, into your next project that was recently announced. Um, you're doing the film adaptation of Japanese Breakfast singer, songwriter, guitarist Michelle Zahner's 2021 memoir, Crying in H Mart. It's described as a coming-of-age story about a half-Korean daughter who returns to small-town Oregon to care for her Korean mother, depicting Chiang Mai and Michelle's relationship as they learn to see and accept one another through the formative power of music and the vibrant flavors of Korean cooking. I'm wondering what first attracted you to this book and then later gave you the instinct to interpret it in film. I, I, I was a fan of Japanese breakfast already like they were on some of my playlists and so i like michelle's music and so i was curious to read the book it's a very personal story it goes to some heavy you know places but it, she writes in such a kind of really elegant light-handed way and uh so we started talking um i read the script uh, as it was at, at the time and there was like a really nice chemistry between us and with the producers too so it felt like a pretty easy decision in the end to want to be a part of it. Because I guess that when you're signing on to a project, you want to feel, you know, like that it excites you, but also that you have something to offer it and that, it, you know, like you are the right person for it too. I really felt like I understood a lot of what she was trying to say. Uh, but it's a, it's a big responsibility because it is such a personal story to Michelle. And, you know, the big thing for us both is to keep that chemistry and to like be insane and to be honest with each other and supportive of each other through it all. So I'm excited to be getting stuck into that for sure. People really lit up at the announcement about this project because I think that it's obviously it's a beloved book. I believe it spent 60 plus weeks on the New York Times bestseller list just to give people a scope of like how beloved this book is. It's hard enough to get on there, let alone sustain for that long. It's over a year. Yeah, it's crazy. But I think it's really exciting too that her involvement in this because sometimes I've, you know, I've read that certain people's stories, you know, I think for instance about Pamela Anderson and the Hulu series Pam and Tommy where she openly expressed the fact that like her story was being told without her consent. I think it's a terrific thing when the author of, and in this case, it's a memoir, so it's deeply personal, mm -hmm. their involvement in any adaptation of the work. For sure. So I recently rewatched your performance in Giri Haji. Okay. For people that don't know, it's the 2019 BBC Two London Tokyo thriller. I forgot how much of a thriller this 10-part series is. My God, from the very first episode, your heart is racing. And your performance in particular as Rodney, uh, who's a rent boy, it's absolutely incredible. I really encourage people... Um, that know you exclusively from The White Lotus to jump over to Giri Haji to get a sense of your range as an actor. And then you got to sort of deep dive and get into all of the work that you've written and directed, which is its own other animal. But I feel like this is such a gateway uh, for people that want to experience your range very quickly. I particularly love that scene on the subway with Taki um, when she reaches oh, yeah. over and grabs your hand. I found that really, really affecting and just so beautiful. Well, thank you. I wanted to know what attracted you to that project initially. Um, well, I love Joe Barton's writing. Uh, he wrote all 10 episodes and I love the character. Like Rodney was like, first of all, he's half Japanese, but he's also somebody who uses humor as like a defense mechanism as a way to sort of protect himself. Uh, and also somebody who's very self-destructive for the most part, which I could also relate to. And yeah, the fact that it was like a sort of Japanese-English, like cross-continental thriller was also exciting to me. And so there's a mixture of like, you know, big sequences in the heart of Soho, 
uh, but also then like just stolen moments like that scene with um tacky on the on the subway that you described where it really was like okay let's like eight of us just jump on the tube and do six stops three takes and then jump off <laughs> I wanted to ask you in particular about the scene that happens later in the series when your character Rodney is in AA and sort of overtakes the room for a period to tell his story. Someone comes along and tries to help us build a little world and we let them until the time comes and the time always comes when we shatter it into a million tiny pieces because it's what we do, it's our way. And that's why we hate ourselves and that's why we do drugs. It's not, you know, rocket science. Sorry, I'm Rodney, by the way, and I'm a drug addict. Obviously, it's a particularly powerful moment because as an audience member, I remember thinking, I have my own opinions about Rodney, but I'm not sure how Rodney feels about Rodney. And it's this great moment of understanding that this melancholy that you as the audience feel about Rodney's life, that that it's something he's aware of and something he's thinking about and something that weighs on him. Um, and I'm just wondering what that scene was like to film, because I feel like it's really a summation of him expressing the feelings that he's not yet perhaps said out loud and then to a room full of strangers. For people who aren't familiar with it, he's an addict, particularly cocaine seems to be a big problem for him, but he kind of like drifts into into crack uh, and other stuff during the series. And this is the moment where he finally ends up at an NA meeting um, and yeah, even in that moment where he's sort of accepting his vulnerability, he's still pretty defensive, his like way into it, it's like, it's obvious. Uh, it was a really fun to film. I had a really bad, like really bad cold, like almost sort of fluey. Felt like my whole head was on fire and my nose wouldn't stop running. And it was kind of like, maybe this is good for a kind of, uh, you know, come down, come down. <laughs> At one point I was developing a script about uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. A friend took me to a few AA meetings. Um, and so, you know, I was thinking, I suppose, about what is strange and beautiful about those rooms, about how everybody is, is in a different stage of recovery. But there can be a sort of uh, like an alchemy sometimes where, you know, it might take a long time um, for some people, but there is a way out. And like what was attractive about Rodney, like aside from the fact that he was kind of funny and said funny things and did funny things was that he was very fragile. And so I think even though the scene is not without its comedy, like I remember on the day Joe Barton was in on that day and he was like, because it's blowing my nose so much. He was like, why don't you just like blow your nose really loud, get everyone's attention before you start speaking. And I was like, Cool. Yeah, let's do that. Because you hate yourself. You had a nice thing and you threw it away because, oh, you hate yourself. It's a moment of vulnerability uh, for him. And then as soon as he leaves, his, yeah, his armor is, is right back on. I particularly love the writing of the character of Rodney because you fall in love with him from the outset, from like the very first scene, despite the fact that he's being very mean um, when you first meet him. But there's a quality, and I think this is, you know, you used the word alchemy earlier. I think it's the alchemy of the writing and your performance as Rodney. There's a gentleness about him, despite his prickly nature. <laughs> and that sort of conundrum, I think, uh, unleashes so much of, of what is exciting about that character. And then like, his impact on Taki, for instance, I feel like he instigates this entire, this beginning of Taki's life is instigated by her 
seeing Rondi on this journey. It's it's fascinating. Anyway, fantastic series. Another Will Sharp must-watch is your brilliant series, Flowers. And it's interesting. I was going to describe to our listener Flowers, and I found myself writing and rewriting the description of the show mm-hmm. because it's so hard to summarize because there is the plot of Flowers, and then there is like the experience of watching Flowers, which exist in tandem but are different. Um, so I'm wondering, how do you describe Flowers to people? It's a sitcom like in its bones but it's a comedy drama really again it goes to some fairly like heavy places and it's it's sort of family comedy drama about mental illness and the idea of home it was my first sort of proper grown-up commission like before that i'd made like a couple of micro budget movies with my friends uh tom kingsley and that was like the first film i think we worked out that we made it for the same amount as one second of Transformers. And it was like, you know, we were the catering, we were the transport, we were everything like, you know. Um, and <laughs> it was like, we cut it on our laptops. By the end, the project was so huge that our my laptop would routinely crash and it would take half an hour to open again. <laughs> and it, where it came from, I think, was a couple of producers had sort of said, it feels like you're trying to guess what we want, but it does, like these ideas don't really suit you. Like we want to know what you want to make, and so flowers was what came out of me taking that advice, which at that time, in this instance, worked out. Uh, and just thinking, well, if there was no agenda or no like, what would I really want to write? And I was trying to write in a way that was really pure, I suppose, and unrestrained. So you know, I have like. Thankfully, like on the mild end of type two bipolar and and more than I had realized at the outset, Flowers became a show that was about that. I sometimes described it as a comedy with a mental illness. The characters as are comedy characters, the story engines are often comic, but it definitely does veer into dramatic, like necessarily veers into like dramatic territory because the subject matter, like after a while, it's like, well... I do have to get real about this at a certain point. I suppose, like, be a little bit sincere, even if that is, like, a really dangerous word for some people in, like, in in the comedy space. You mentioned that you're going out and sort of, like, pitching these ideas, and the networks are basically saying to you, hey, you're trying to, like, reverse engineer a hit, and that's, like, that's not how it happens, right? So then you said you go back, and then that's how Flowers came about. But immediately after getting that feedback, I imagine that it's, like, that's helpful feedback to an extent, but it's also like, okay, thank you. You've identified the problem. So now it's like, oh my gosh, how to go about finding a new solution? After you first got the feedback, how did you go back to the drawing board? What were those original steps to get to what eventually became Flowers? I think on the very first draft of the treatment, I said this, I want this to be like an uplifting show about melancholy. But as it went on, I realized, and partly it was just like a sort of like, um, like a writerly exercise of okay I've written a scene where the father of the family has tried and failed to hang himself why did he get there how did he get there what are the repercussions of this what does it do to his relationship with his wife what does it do to his relationship with his kids and every sort of decision I made had to sort of circle back to that kind of initial event at the time the conversation surrounding mental illness was not was not as evolved as it is now and so i remember in the sort of script meetings sometimes needing to 
kind of uh, defend a position or sort of speak from experience in a way that like touch wood you probably wouldn't need to do anymore but even for example like a simple question like but why is he depressed you know why what is making him depressed is kind of like well it i and that would be the easy like script way to fix it is to give some like secret reason but uh but it can just be that he's simply unwell I want to ask you about the music and in, in so much of your work. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. your work with your brother, Arthur, who you've worked with. He did the music for Flowers, Landscapers, and the Electrical Life mm-hmm. of Louis Wayne. So he, you worked with him quite a bit. I'm obsessed with music in television and film and the impact that it has on a lot of people like unconsciously there's just so many times i go back and watch things from my youth that affected me a certain way Uh and i'll go back now and be like wow that acting is terrible but the music (laughs) got me over the line where i was like it told me how to feel without me even realizing i was being told exactly what to feel so the music in your work i feel like is so important there are so many clues throughout and then I go and do my research, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Will's brother. What is that like, uh, getting to work with your brother in this capacity? My brother and I are pretty close in age, but we don't have a kind of relationship where we sort of talk really openly about our feelings with each other. Like, we're not going for a drink and kind of talking about life for two hours. I think what's interesting about collaborating on, like, the movies and the TV shows that we've done together is that I know that he sees life in a certain way and can express certain emotions because of the music that he's sending me, sort of surprising me with. Uh, and similarly, he probably feels the same about me because of the scripts I'm sending him with edits that he's getting from us. Like, for example, with Flowers, before I'd even probably finalized the shooting script, he'd sent me a couple of demos. And they were very sort of, uh, there was a little bit of darkness to them, but they were quite playful and mischievous. And it really helped me to kind of get a sense of the tone. The sound world of a film for me is as important as the visual world. And they all need to speak to each other. And so I'll always sort of have in my back pocket, whether it's on a location scout or whatever it is, like the, um, like the demos that Arthur's done so that if we're stuck in traffic or whatever and we're just chatting, I can play something to the designer and the DP and it might spark off a conversation about, you know, like which location we want to choose or like what, you know, it, it can sometimes sort of lead somewhere. Yeah, it's like our main, probably our, our main and deepest mode of communication which <laughs> is through the work. It's off kilter, but I think it's really powerful. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's better than no communication. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> that alternative is not good. You know, we're talking about music. One of the aspects of the White Lotus that I was the most interested in was the score. Um, you know, people talk a lot about the theme song for obvious reasons, but I listen to the score on Spotify all the time, and I'm always captured with like the way it evokes emotions from me, even if I'm just on the subway in New York City. Um, I find myself sort of brought out of this realm and sometimes into the world of the White Lotus, sometimes into a play in my mind. It really takes me places consistently. I'm wondering, you know, you're an actor in the work, so the music is not playing as you are performing in those scenes. Mm -hmm. Will Sharp, the viewer of the show White Lotus, what was it like for you to see the music laid over this footage that you'd filmed? When Mike got the light, 
new version of the title music for the second series that was like based on the first series but like evolved he was really excited by it and he was sort of playing it to us and it felt like it had this kind of like swagger to it and so there was something something kind of uh weirdly sinister about it too and i mean in terms of like our story like in our sort of quartet i mean it's so toxic and the music i think for me more than anything maybe accentuates that tension and that feeling of like and there is like something weird about Sicily oh yeah how it's so like unthinkably beautiful and and maybe the Mediterranean in general or Italy in general but there is also this weird sort of hot melancholy this kind of like simmering darkness playing Ethan like you know like he was somebody who's carrying a lot of a lot of tension and like somebody who's internalizing a lot of uh, stress and so you know with the best uh kind of well in the world like i'm not sort of a method actor on purpose but you do what i find anyway like you sort of carry the characters around with you a little bit um so i if anything like maybe find the music a little bit triggering <laughs> i don't want to go back to that place where you know like your marriage is <laughs> you know it's funny you mentioned method acting because I wanted to ask you about this because you have this unique perspective of being both an actor and a director. So I feel like you kind of understand both sides of the equation if it's if we were to make the equation that simple. Now, method acting comes up from time to time in the press. And when it's revealed that an actor, you know, often men uh, stayed in character for the entirety of production on something, I'm reminded of the uh, 2021 profile in New Yorker of succession actor Jeremy Strong. And he said, quote, I think you have to go through whatever the ordeal is that the character has to go through. He also admitted to isolating himself from his castmates and sometimes refusing to rehearse because he wanted, quote, every scene to feel like I'm encountering a bear in the woods, end quote. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, using both your director and actor brain, uh, what your approach is to acting. As you said, sometimes it sounds like in the case of White Lotus, for instance, you didn't choose to take Ethan home with you and, and the emotions, but they sort of follow you even if you try to rid yourself of them. So I'm wondering your thoughts on it. Like as a director, first of all, I think one of the best things about rehearsal, for example, is that you get to know your cast and how each works differently and what they need from you and how to communicate with each other and how it's all going to sort of gel and so i i respect like everybody's way into the work like everybody has a different way in some people can be like texting making a shopping list or whatever and then like but that's the only way go on and like you know other people need to like stay in character for the whole production like that's okay too I know there are sort of jokes about like method acting where it's kind of like nobody ever method acts when it's like a really nice character. <laughs> yeah, um, but like I, I do understand it. I mean, for me, I think it's more just like that you're thinking about it. You're thinking ahead to the scenes that are coming your way. I think the closest I got to like actively trying to get into Ethan's head was like doing the run that he did like up the steps, up the hill in in Taormina. Partly because it was just like, there was quite a few beats, like more even than made it into the show of him doing that run. So it seemed like it was important to Mike. And I was trying to like, like, what is he doing? Like, what is that about? And in the end, it just felt like it was, first of all, about discipline. 
uh, and him being somebody who believes in discipline. Second of all, I suppose like space and alone time to sort of process the things that are going on. Obviously was like a busy, very busy individual and probably like busier than he'd ever been uh, if he's just come into all this money. I don't know if there's something about the way Mike directs as well, but you just end up sort of investing in what he's trying to say with these scenes. And so, and, and it's just so, it's just like, and he would always push it, I felt, to like, it's the the limit of toxicity, where maybe my instinct would be to take the curse out of it a little bit, like try to take the edge off. Is there a way to soften this? He would always just like pull it and pull it and pull it until it was like, wow, this is... <laughs> this is excruciating and sometimes it was very uncomfortable to play and uh and i have to admit it was pretty uncomfortable to watch too like uh which i think is the idea one of the fascinating things i find with the white lotus is how much of a backstory i find myself giving these characters despite there not being one and i know so much of the fan conversation has been around what do you think happened with this or or, or where do you think these characters are going to go next i mean one of the interesting things in thinking about that final beat with Ethan and Harper at the airport is the unknown of what their future holds. Like, did this vacation, in fact, air quotes, fix their marriage? Um, are they stronger than ever? That's the implication of that tableau, right? Like, the, their body language is such that they're finally sinking into one another instead of pulling apart, right? He's no longer yeah. his runs in the morning with her in bed. They're together. However, you know, and, and this speaks to what you were saying earlier about the music, that sinister nature. Mm -hmm. You can't help but look at that volcano in the background and say, like, this is not a repaired marriage. This is a Band-Aid. And yet you also have to live with the fact as a viewer that this story is complete, question mark. Like, it, it is. It's, it's done. But there's that feeling of, like, I remain so curious as to, like, because these characters are so lived in, both in the writing and in performance, you want to know more. It's like, where are they going from here? I mean, I I agree. I feel like there's like a, there are questions at the end, which I think is nice about the way you sort of balanced it. And you could see either way. I mean, I think there's definitely been some kind of catharsis at the end of the series for Ethan and Harper. And they've found a way in their own dysfunctional, you know, uh, way. They've found a way to connect. Um, and I know that on that day at the airport, Mike really wanted it to see us to be happy you know in that moment to be happy but i feel like yeah it's like have they taken something like some small piece of daphne and cameron's marriage and has it kind of like reset the timer for them and they've sort of like broken the spell if you like and have found a new way of being together that is healthier or is it that they are new to this world of privilege like this interpretation would be like the only version where i sort of felt aware of my ethnicity in the making of the show i suppose it's sort of their induction into this world of like white privilege and it's kind of like they're new to this world they've just come into this money it's like hey what's what's to lose let's go and like treat ourselves and it's like if you want to exist on this plane people like us then you have to be corrupted and you have to be like this and so it was almost like so I always felt like with Ethan, you know, he's so contained for like maybe six episodes, you know, and, and then it starts to surf. It's almost like he's like, I want to play by different rules. I want to play by rules that I think are what the rules should be. And then in the end, it's like, okay, we're not going to play it by the rules that I want to play by. We have to play it by these fucked up rules. 
so let's fucking play and then he kind of comes out of his shell and starts playing the game on Cameron's terms on Harper's terms on Daffy's terms and kind of like being much more active and front-footed and that felt like a release of tension like literally and a lot of that stuff was shot like later on in schedule so it felt like I always had to have an eye on that there is a sort of an element of romance I think to the way Mike balances the ending um which I think is necessary um you know to, to sort of to have that piece of light to get to get us through it as cast and as audience you mentioned that awareness of ethnicity there are a few moments within this season in which you sort of have the characters of Cameron and Daphne acknowledging their whiteness and these right. vaguely racist moments where they clearly like are not aware of the company that they brought here. I believe you and Aubrey were the only people of color in this cast. And I'm wondering what it's like for you being on a mostly white set, especially one like this where, not isolated from the world, but like, you know, you had to stay in Sicily. I believe it was, I think Coolidge told me a seven month shoot. Um, I'm wondering what that experience was like for you. What was great about it uh, in part was that he's like, Ethan is not like a kind of out-and-out cartoon villain. I think there is villainy to him, uh, and he's problematic. He's a problematic male, as are all the cast, you know, in, in different ways. Uh, but he's not like a sort of cartoonish villain. And he's also not that kind of sickly sweet nerd character that Asian men will get cast uh, as those characters. He's somewhere in between. He's morally very grey. And as you say, like the story isn't principally really about his ethnicity. So that was really uh, liberating. And like, uh, I was very grateful for that opportunity, I think, to play that part. But I guess like necessarily, like there are times where you sort of become aware of it, like in the instances that you sort of uh, mentioned in the script, but also just kind of like, because I suppose like the tension for Ethan and like the resentment, if you like, isn't really principally based on um ethnicity i don't think uh or heritage but obviously like i am playing an asian american so it would be one of the things going on in his head i don't know if i should tell that like um so like, obviously like when you're actors uh you go um through hair and makeup and then you get into your costume and then you go to set right and i'm not saying this to throw anyone under the bus because they were all really lovely. There was like three Italian hair artists who are all like the sweetest people. And you get these like continuity photos every day where they take pictures and they just want to make sure your hair looks the same as it did yesterday or whatever. And one day they came up to me and they were so like pleased to share something with me and they showed me this photo and they're like, we've worked out who it is that you look like. You look like Bruce Lee. Like with this big smile, not re realizing that like any Asian man in the Western world would have had Bruce Lee shouted at them in the street at some point in their life, like Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan. And but it was so innocent. Basically, every day I'd come in and be like, "Ciao, Bruce," <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, and I just was like, didn't want to. I just didn't want to like because it was so warm and so loving. It was not meant. Uh, they didn't mean any harm. So I just went with it, and I was like, "Yeah, man." And I'm not sharing it to get anyone into trouble because, as I say, there was not a drop of malice in it. But it's impossible not to be aware of your um, of what you look like, you know, sometimes. And particularly in a show like this, 
as it is, as you say, predominantly white. But I think like that's, I think Mike is, you know, he knows what he's writing about uh, and he knows what he's saying. And so, and we talked about, you know, like the fact that I'm half Japanese and that Ethan is an Asian American and, and how to balance that and how to play that. So, but it wasn't like the headline ever, which I think is refreshing. I think that's one of the fascinating things about this show, how real the characters feel and these discussions that are in the text, but not in the text, et cetera. You know, in thinking about this show, hits of this magnitude are uncommon. Um, there's just a feverishness to this fandom that anyone that touches this show sort of receives the magic, that, that Mike White touch, their careers are impacted as a result. If you were to sort of say what the ingredients are that make this a show that people not only enjoy watching, because that happens, right, but people enjoy discussing this show in a way that I think is not unprecedented, but incredibly rarefied. I mean, the simple answer is just that it's very good. Like, he's such a creature of precision, I think, even if he likes to disguise himself as somebody who's just like, you know, it's just sort of like all falls into place. But I always felt like he knew exactly what he wanted with every scene, you know, and the scripts were also very clean, very immaculately balanced. I mean, I think a huge part of what's enjoyable about the show is the sort of murder mystery element that not only do you get to spend time with these like really well-drawn characters, you also get to play the game of trying to guess who's going to be killed and who who's going to kill and you know and also who do you want to be killed and who do you want to be the killer you know and all of that stuff which is a really just like delicious game um maybe also the ensemble nature of it means that you get like a taste of everyone but it feels that there are kind of hinterlands off screen with every character, with every relationship, it's kind of like there's more to imagine. There was space to imagine. And so you would bring, you would carry ideas of like these characters sort of home lives and, you know, like into the, into the scenes, partly because you had time to sort of think about that stuff, I guess, but also because maybe the show invites that. You know, there is a similarity in tracks between you and Mike uh, in that the both of you sort of like, are actors, writers, and directors. You both vacillate between. Um, oftentimes, sometimes we'll have someone that starts as an actor, you know, gets the directing bug and then becomes known as a director and sort of uh, backs away from acting. But you're writing and directing, then you go and perform in someone else's work, then you're writing and directing. I'm wondering, how is your acting enriched by your directing? And then how is your directing enriched by your acting? I guess maybe because I started out just like with a camera and some friends you know trying to shoot some scenes that i've always seen it like ultimately in that way that it's kind of like just a bunch of people trying to make a film together um but i mean sometimes i use the analogy of like cycling and driving a car where in london like there is this sort of unexplained fierce rivalry between cyclists and drivers um, but if you're driving and you've recently been on a bicycle, you can remember how it felt to be on the bicycle. So you sort of like cut them some slack. Like, you're like, oh, actually, it's quite scary to be on a bicycle. And similarly, if you've recently driven a car and you're on your bike, it's like, well, they're not trying to kill you. It's just like a narrow road. 
So, I mean, I think that can be helpful, maybe like a slightly enhanced degree of empathy, you know, like if you're directing something for the actors where you remember how it felt to wait four hours for lighting and then suddenly you've got like 45 minutes to shoot the most important scene of the of the show or whatever it is, um, you can remember how that felt. And similarly, when you're coming to set, you, you also are appreciative of the fact that the director has a hundred million things on their mind, you know, only ask the questions you really need to ask and things like that. That metaphor of the cyclist and the motorist, that was one of the most vivid metaphors I've ever been given. That explains it so clearly. <laughs> I want to ask you about social media, uh, your lack of social media presence, which I find fascinating. I imagine that one of the pros of not having social media is the anonymity, um, which I think is really helpful. I wish more actors maybe would think about this in that the less we, the public, know about you, the easier it's going to be for us to believe you in a role, to not sort of take our preconceived notions of who you are and put that on top of the role, okay? But on the other side of it, it's a business, right? Mm -hmm. And social media and those numbers are something that a lot of Hollywood executives or executives outside of Hollywood, just sure. a lot of the, the people laying down the money they care about. Where do you come down on that? I just don't do it because I felt I was happier off it and um, wasn't getting enough from it, I guess. The whole thing is a, it's a balance, a principal way for me to communicate with the public and an audience, I think, is like through the work, whether it's through a performance or through making of a show or a movie. That's how I want to talk with the audience. You know, I also understand that it's important to engage with the audience and to sort of... Um, talk with people like yourself and be, you know, be available. Like I remember a big sort of turning point for me was listening to, like talking with a producer and he was talking about some other friends of his who had sort of like disappeared a little bit from the limelight. And I remember him saying, it's really sad. They think they're Radiohead, but they're not Radiohead. And that really stuck with me that it's kind of like, there's no point in making stuff that you're proud of if you're just making it in a vacuum. So you have to put yourself out there a little bit. But yeah, I haven't been tempted by social media at all. Yeah, we'll see. I bring it up because there's a lot of public goodwill for you. And you're someone that when I see your name pop up online, I mean, I even think about the announcement, you know, of uh, crying in H-Mart and how excited people were, both because of their love for Michelle and their love for you in this book and being like, oh, this is such an exciting pairing. However, you're not online to sort of pick up what's being put down. I think that that's maybe healthy, right? Like, I don't know if necessarily you being online and seeing how much people love you and love your work, if that does anything, if it's even worth hearing. Is there a part of you that's ever like, wow, I, I want to go online and see what the conversation is because it's a good conversation, but does that benefit me at all? You get a sense of it just from your life, I think, and from how you the conversations in life and, you know, interactions with the public, I guess. Wait, so you're saying there's a world outside of the internet? I think so. It's just about, still. Yeah. I work very hard on the things that I'm working on, partly because I think I know that if I haven't finished the job, um, feeling like I put everything that I could put into that, into that, then there'll be something that will haunt me, whether it's a success or, or not. Like, And then it doesn't really matter what people think. So like the making of a show or a film, it's kind of like that's where I feel 
it's obviously very stressful, but that's sort of like in a funny way, like where you feel freest and then, and then you just have to hand it over. As soon as you leave one project, it seems like looking at your resume, you go to the next thing. And so it's like you dive into the next work to continue to, to do the thing you love. I mean, I think about landscapers, for instance, uh, one, uh, just terrific show. Um, that's so unlike your other work. Um, so I think it's exciting when you get to just keep making exciting projects, whether that be behind the camera or in front of it. So it almost gives you less time to gestate in the court of public opinion and sort of dive right back into the world of making the things that people then have an opinion about. Like I love collaborating with people and like finding new collaborators, revisiting old collaborators, like deepening those relationships. On that topic you're just speaking of, which is collaborators, Olivia Coleman is a frequent collaborator of yours. And I really do feel like you bring out some of her best work. And that's really saying something when you have a body of work as robust and acclaimed as Olivia's. Who is someone else sort of on that list, an actor established or not? That's just someone that you're really keen to work with and exchange ideas with. Like, I guess, like, my personal taste is that I don't find things funny unless I feel like the characters are grounded in some kind of reality and have, you know, a three-dimensional. And, and I similarly am rarely moved by something unless it has a little bit of a sense of humor. And I really felt like, of course, like, Olivia is able to, like, balance the light with the dark, like, so effortlessly. And so I'm always, like, fascinated by people like that. I'm wary of just like firing these like amazing names that you do. It's just kind of like, who am I? <laughs> I get it, I get it. Who am I to like, you know, there are like names sort of like ticker taping through my brain and I'm like, you can't say that. Well, and I imagine too, it's kind of like what you were talking about earlier uh, when you mentioned Michelle, where so much of it is chemistry based. You know, you might really want to work with an actor because you love their work, but you might get in the room with them and be like, feel no spark that makes you want to work with them in any capacity. And it sounds like with Olivia, at least me that doesn't know your relationship, you get the impression from watching these varied works of yours together um, that there is that creative spark that exists between the two of you. Yes, but interestingly, I don't think it came straight away. So like on the re rehearsals for the pilot of Flowers, when we first worked together, I remember her sort of saying, like, I'm not super keen on, you know, on rehearsals and so I was kind of trying to get a sense of of how she worked and it was like are you more instinctive do you like to sort of feed it out and and we had like a sort of you know slightly awkward conversation trying to just figure each other out and through the shooting of the pilot which would have been like six days you know I think we worked pretty well together but I didn't give her that many notes partly because I felt like I just felt like she knows what she's doing and also I don't want to get in the way and then after it got the pilot got green lit I remember us talking and Olivia sort of being like, you can like feed, feed back to me. And that sort of like opened something up. So then on the shooting of the series, I felt much more able just to sort of like, just be honest and sort of be like, I don't think that works. Let's do it again. And from then it felt like we really found a rhythm. And by the time we were shooting Landscapers, I remember there was like a couple of scenes where, you know, she was doing some really extraordinary work and I would be there at the monitor and it would be like two takes in the can and I remember saying to her like it's weird because I know that you can do this so it's sort of easy to take it for granted but that was really extraordinary still what you did you know and I feel like that's what I, I love 
I just was amazing, amazing about people, I guess, but also like in this kind of line of work, you find yourself with Arthur as well, you know, like people who you really know, you really know, mm -hmm. but they still surprise you. Mm. Those are the people that I like working with the most are the ones where it's like, I feel safe working with you, but also I know you're going to bring something unexpected. It sounds like that moment with Olivia, like that affirmation of you telling her that that's really good. Like, that too is directing, right? It's like directing's not just telling the actor, go to this mark or do this thing. Also like affirming a performance that was given. I went to NYU for directing a long time ago. I haven't done it in quite a bit, but I remember <laughs> a lot of it too was like earning that trust through human behavior, social dynamics, understanding, creating or destroying the hierarchy, whatever, however you, you choose to sort of run your room. But like you are in control of the temperature of the room, which informs the work as much as the directions that come out of your mouth. You have to be empathetic, I think. Filmmaking is such like a insanely collaborative process. Like you might have your, you know, like list of, of things that you need to solve on any given day but the more that you can kind of like work together to solve the the biggest like headline problems as a group i think the better which goes back to what we were saying earlier about the metaphor of the cyclist and the car yeah it's having that that empathy for the cyclists if you're in the car exactly yeah well thank you so much i can't encourage people enough if if you know Will exclusively from The White Lotus, and I imagine a lot of listeners know your robust work, but if on the off chance you only know The White Lotus, go on this man's Wikipedia, start from the top, work your way down. I had a blast researching and watching all of this work, some of which I was revisiting ahead of today. I think that you just, both your work as an actor and director, it's thrilling to watch. I'm, I'm really uh, ecstatic that we had the chance to chat today and I just, I wanted everyone to go and watch your entire canon of work. Thanks, Evan. That's so sweet. Thank you. It's been really fun to talk. All right, Will, thank you so much. I wish you nothing but continued success. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.